1: Murder at Manhattan Well. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Boys.
3: Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Well, it's fall, the leaves are falling, the Mm -hmm. pumpkin spice is out in force, and the Halloween decorations are being hung on the stoop.
1: This is, in fact, Greg Young's favorite
3: season. (laughs) So, of course, we're tackling a very unbelievable tale of
1: true crime. Yes, we're turning our attention to a most horrible murder that took place in 1799, less than two decades after the end of the Revolutionary War. And John Adams is president, and many prominent Revolutionary War figures are still bustling about the streets of Manhattan. It's a tale of contrasts, a ruthless
3: crime committed against a seemingly innocent woman who lived in a boarding house, a story which soon entangled some of the most well-known and powerful men in American history.
1: It's also notable because it was the first recorded murder case in the United States. It was written out by court reporter William Coleman. You can still read the testimony verbatim today. This is a true historical post-colonial whodunit. And it's a story that starts down on Greenwich Street. There once stood a boarding house at 208
3: Greenwich Street. That is the lower end of Greenwich Street today. In the year 1799, the house was run by two Quakers named Catherine and Elias Ring, and although the neighborhood would later gain a reputation as the site for houses of ill repute, the Rings would operate a a fairly clean and respectable establishment. Mrs. Ring operated a millinery shop from this location, making custom hats for fine New York ladies. In her employment were her sister, Hope Sands, and their cousin, Julielma Sands, whom everybody called Elma. Hope and Elma also lived in the boarding house. So what made this arrangement rather somewhat unusual for two unmarried women like Hope and Elma was that most of the guests in the boarding house were men. Elma was a pale and sickly young woman, a loner, and sometimes rather moody, Elma had lived here with her aunt and uncle for about three years. She certainly hoped to improve her station in life, though, and she knew that there might be a better place for her somewhere in this world. Elma Sands also held a secret, one that would have scandalized her entire family. Elma was having a secret affair. On the week of December 19th, 1799, gloom had descended upon the boarding house, indeed upon the whole city, News had just arrived that George Washington had died. Although the entire country was plunged into mourning, New Yorkers especially felt a great sadness. The great man had been sworn in as the first president of the United States just ten years earlier and just a half mile from the site of the Ring's boarding house. For days, the windows and shutters of all the buildings in New York were shrouded in black crepe many businesses would remain closed until the end of the year. Three days later, on the evening of December 22nd, 1799, Elma appeared next to the fire in the common room, wearing what must only be described as her Sunday best, white petticoat and white frilly ribbons. Her look was not quite complete. She ran and borrowed the neighbor's muff, A beautiful accessory for a cold, forlorn winter's evening. Her cousin, Mrs. Ring here, observed this flitting about with some concern. She was now aware of Elma's illicit romance. A romance with somebody in the boarding house. And that Sunday night, with Elma in her finest, she would leave the boarding house, never to be seen alive again. Northeast of the boarding house sat a curious place just outside of town, north of Old Collect Pond. It was called Lisbonard's Meadow, a wet marshy field named for an old French Huguenot settler. Few ventured into the meadow, a foul-smelling and icy place on a dour, cold evening. That evening, as dusk faded into darkness, those riding sleighs along Old Broadway could make out the sharp, terrifying cry of a woman begging for mercy. Two days later, on Christmas Eve, a young boy named William Blank was wandering through the snow-covered meadow, possibly on the lookout for something to eat for a Christmas holiday, some kind of poultry or a turkey. When he came across an old well made of brick, it had been sealed shut with wood planks. Still, An adventurous type could peer inside of it, if he wished, and it was here, in the well or around it, in the snow, that the young boy found that lovely fur muff. A few days later, word of the disappearance of the Quaker girl, Elma Sands, began circulating around town. The news reached the home of the young boy, who lived near Lisbonard's meadow, and his family became suddenly gripped with terror at one particular detail of this news. The disappeared woman had worn a fine lady's muff, the very same one that had been found that chilly Christmas Eve. A search party was sent to the old boarded-up well. The investigators knocked back the snow, tore off the planks, and peered into the black, fetid water. It wasn't a deep well, and the townsfolk were able to plunge into the waters with a long pole. They soon made a net from nearby ropes, and as they stirred around this stagnant stew, they could make out a figure moving disturbingly under the surface. At last, they were able to latch onto the figure and slowly pull it up out of the dark void of the well. To their horror, they discovered the body of a woman beaten her clothing torn her once frilly white ribbons blackened and soaked it was the body of the missing girl it was the body of elma sands
1: that was on january 2nd 1800 when elma's poor beaten body was lifted up the well and through the meadow and down through town carried on a piece of wood back to the boarding house And there, the word spread rapidly that her murdered body had been returned. And so many neighbors pushed into the Ring's home to see for themselves that Elias and Catherine Ring lifted her body back out into the street and into the open air, and from here, crowds could pass, and they could witness the evidence for themselves. The Crowds who passed not only included uh, curious neighbors, but also doctors who examined her, and... And it wasn't, it wasn't long before rumors started spreading around town who had been responsible for this terrible deed. Four days after her body was discovered, on January 6th, a grand jury declared this an act of murder. And four days after that, on January 10th, 10, another tenant at the Rings boarding house, Levi Weeks, was arrested and led off to jail where he awaited the trial of the murder of Elma Sands.
3: Wow. Well, Tom, let's take off our theatrical robes, our theatrical voices here.
1: Do we have to cut the
3: background music? Oh, no, no, no. We're we're definitely leaving that. But I think it's time, now that we've kind of set up the situation here, Mm -hmm. that we more formally introduce the people here. In fact, why don't we start with the victim here? Let's okay. learn a little bit more about her.
1: All right. So we're setting this up in Agatha Christie style, mm-hmm. right? Where we're going to now learn about all the people living in this house. Mm-hmm. Elma Sands was 22 years old at the time. She, she grew up in upstate New York, but she had moved down to New York to live with her cousins. According to later testimony, her parents were still living, but they never actually married each other. Elma was a rather sickly and fragile type. She frequently stayed at home at the back at the boarding house with stomach cramps that she seemed to suffer for about a year before her disappearance. She initially lived in the front bedroom on the second floor of the boarding house, but later moved to the back room for the three weeks uh, before her disappearance, the back room of the second floor. Now, according to Mrs. Ring's later testimony, Levi had stated that Alma was also fragile emotionally, even suicidal. Levi told her, quote, I heard her say that she wished she never had an existence. Now, Mrs. Ring would take that just to mean, you know, a silly thing that people say when they're upset or tired. But Levi said that he had also heard Alma say that if she had had laudanum, a poison, at her disposal, she would have swallowed it. However, by all accounts, the night of her disappearance on December 22nd, Elma seemed to be in a great mood.
3: Might it have had something to do with this Mr. Levi Weeks?
1: Perhaps. (laughs) Mr. Weeks, who was born in Greenwich, Massachusetts in 1776 and moved to New York to live with his brother Ezra in 1798 uh, before moving into the boarding house the next year in July just five months before the crime, when he was 23 years old. Now, Levi was a seemingly well-behaved young man. He was a carpenter who worked mostly for his his brother Ezra, who was a very well-respected architect and builder.
3: So he worked all over town on these building projects, as well as his brother's
1: workshop. That's right. He would work um, in the workshop. He would work on site, even supervising other people at the construction sites. So Levi lived in the ring's boarding house. That's right. He had moved in in July. Now, the rings, Elias and Catherine Ring, as you mentioned, they were strong Quakers. Uh, they kept their boarding house in the what was described at the time as the upper parts of Greenwich streets. Today, we would very much consider them to be the lower parts mm-hmm. of the street. <laughs> they were Alma's cousins, and Alma lived in their boarding house for three years, according to Catherine Ring, and was treated as their child. So the rings must be older? No, they were actually only in their late 20s. In fact, Catherine Ring was only 27 years old. So Elma lives with her
3: cousins, Catherine and Elias Ring. Mm -hmm. And there is another cousin, though,
1: in the house, right? Yes, that's Hope Sands. Hope is Elias Ring's sister. If you'd like, I can diagram this for you. (laughs) She was Alma's cousin. She was a friend. She was a confidant. Sometimes she was the roommate in the boarding house.
3: Hope Sands is such a melodramatic soap opera name. I think I I think I think saw her in Days of Our
1: Lives. Like Sands through the hourglass? <laughs> yes. No. Different Hope, different Sands. Now, Hope occasionally hung out with Levi. Um, she went with him on a date to a charity sermon. I mean, that's when you went on dates to charity sermons. <laughs> Elma was supposed to go with them, but she had been too sick and it was too wet outside, so she stayed home. Hope also had suspicions that there was something going on between Elma and Levi. Um, She had actually walked in on them together in in their bedroom. She even tiptoed up the stairs a few times to spy on Elma and Levi and see if there was something going on. And And there were others living in the boarding house as well, including a rather curious fellow named Richard David Croucher, who was from England. He had moved to the U.S. in January of 1799. He was something of a loner, and he didn't eat with the group. He was not a boarder, just a lodger.
3: So among the people in the boarding house, and there were a few others Mm -hmm. that are sort of incidental to this story, but we have Mr. and Mrs. Ring, Catherine and Elias. We have Hope Sands. We have Levi Weeks. And we have this curious fellow from England, Richard Croucher.
1: And we, of course, have Alma Sands often staying behind in the boarding house because she was too fragile to go outside. Now, let's rewind a few months to September of 1799, when something notable had happened. In September which they considered to be the sick season because this was a month in which yellow fever traditionally took its grip on the city. Several inhabitants here of the boarding house had fled to the countryside, up to the village of Greenwich, up to other places in the country to escape the sickness. That included Catherine Ring, who left the job of taking care of the boarding house to her husband, Elias, and to Elma. Levi and Richard Croucher also stayed behind at the boarding house. But Catherine, in an effort to escape the possible
3: infections of yellow fever, escaped into the countryside up north.
1: Yes, for six weeks. And during that time, with the moral compass away from the boarding house, it suggested that Levi and Alma started living together, quote, in the most intimate manner. Catherine would note when she got back home that they showed signs of attachment and that Levi was, was frequently in the room when she was sick. And for weeks— For, for Levi weeks? For And for <laughs> Levi weeks, <laughs> Levi insisted on nursing Elma back to health. He didn't want to leave her room at night, even though she, she roomed with Hope. What if she needed a doctor in the middle of the night? Which brings us back to Richard Croucher, that other character, because he also stayed behind in September, and he also saw the relationship between Levi and Elma flourish. He testified later that he knew of them passing two entire nights together, and frequently they spent time together at all times during the night. Quote, I saw the prisoner come out of his room and pass the door in his shirt only. In his shirt only? In hi- Wow. Yes. You mean Levi
3: wasn't wearing jeans?
1: In his shirt only, Greg. Passing to his own room. Once too, at a time when they were less cautious than usual, I saw them in a very intimate situation.
3: Well, Levi seems to be in her room a lot, but he had his own room.
1: Yes, and he shared his room with his apprentice, a boy named William Anderson. He would say that Levi had explained to him that he wasn't courting or especially affectionate for Alma. He was just spending time with her for the sake of conversation. But he also said that he witnessed Levi going to Alma's room late at night dressed only in his shirt and sometimes spending the night there. But back to the crime
3: in December of 1799, do we know that these two were planning on getting
1: married or eloping or escaping? Well, we know that on December 1st, Elma disclosed to Hope that she and Levi were to be married the following Sunday in complete secrecy, and she forced Hope to swear to secrecy on the matter, forbidding her to tell Mrs. Ring or anyone else at the boarding house. But a few weeks later, on Saturday, December 21st, Hope did tell Catherine Ring that Elma and Levi were planning to get married the next night on Sunday, December 22nd. Now, Mrs. Ring was really shocked, and she confronted Elma about the plans, and according to Mrs. Ring, Elma confessed that, yes, Levi was scheduled to come and get her at 8 p.m. So Mrs. Ring helped Elma dress, Elma borrowed the neighbor's muff, and that Sunday night they awaited the arrival of Levi. A few hours later, Mrs. Ring heard Elma speaking to somebody in the hallway, and she heard the door open and close. And she assumed that the two had departed to get married. She heard them leave, but she did not see them leave. So where did Levi claim he was? Levi uh, claimed that he was off having dinner at his brother's house.
3: Ezra Weeks, the the famed builder of New York City.
1: Yes, for important people. Um, he had even worked on the very well that Elma had fallen into, because he had a contract, Ezra had a contract, with the Manhattan Company, which had been awarded the project of bringing fresh water into the city. And he also worked on notable residences, too, like plans for Alexander Hamilton's new estate in Upper Manhattan. So Levi,
3: who's just, you know, a guy working in his brother's shop, actually is well-connected through his brother to these big names...
1: Yes, his brother had lots of connections, but he also had a piece of possible evidence because he owned a one-horse single sleigh, uh, which prosecutors said was seen taken off his property without the sleigh bells on. And a single sleigh track was found in the snow very near the Manhattan well. But Ezra also provided an alibi for Levi because that Sunday he had invited his brother over for dinner. Levi had spent hours at his house, not only having dinner, but then also having a business meeting, which was very common for them, uh, specifically because they were discussing a construction project for a Mr. James Cummings. And Levi had taken extensive notes about the dimensions of a series of windows and that sort of thing that Sunday night, which, you know, was all evidence that Ezra Weeks had at his disposal.
3: So the alibi, in essence, is that they were hard at work together on this new project for Mr. Cummings.
1: Yes, that was Levi's alibi, although there were others nearby Ezra's residence who would testify that they had seen and heard things uh, for instance, a neighbor named Susanna Broad who saw someone leave Ezra's house that Sunday night in a one horse sleigh with the bells removed, which was very unusual. And there was an Arnetta Van Norden who lived nearby the well who told investigators that she heard a woman screaming that night, Lord, have mercy on me, Lord, help me. There was another witness who saw a young man of Levi's build. Poking around in the Manhattan Well just days before the disappearance. So, with all this, Levi was arrested and taken to prison to await trial, which would commence on March 31st, 1800. Now, up until this point, this sounds like a, a rather
3: romantic mystery that could possibly take place in almost any city in the world. We focused on the very broad strokes of the situation itself. However, this story is about to get real because this trial would involve two of the biggest personalities in New York City and would take place in one of the most important spots.
1: Because the defense team representing Levi Weeks in the murder of Elma Sands included Henry Brockholst Livingston who had served in the Revolutionary War and was a member of one of New York's most famous families. But it also included two other lawyers, Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. We'll get to the dramatic trial and its aftermath after this. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery Plus.
0: Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework,
3: that Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr just pop in at this point. It just seemed like a scary bedtime story up until now and then bam, nope, we're talking about actual history. How in the world did these two get involved in this trial? Well, you've already mentioned that they are slightly tied to the mystery through their work with Ezra Weeks, but well, I'll get it's a, a
1: weeks little... connection.
3: But also, Burr and Hamilton in the year 1800 were two of New York's most prominent lawyers and among the most famous men in the city... When you hire these two, you're getting, like, top-shelf representation in court. And indeed, these two had appeared in court together dozens of times. So this strikes us today as far
1: stranger than it was at the time.
3: Yeah, I-, I wouldn't even say that they were major political rivals at this time, although they were on different sides of the aisle politically, with Hamilton being a Federalist
1: and Burr being a Democratic-Republican. Now, you mentioned the Manhattan Company. That's right, because Ezra Weeks, Levi's brother, had helped construct some of the wells, including this one, the Manhattan well, uh, that Elmo was founded at the bottom of. And these wells were part of the Manhattan Company, which
3: was founded in 1799 by
1: Aaron Burr. With ostensibly the purpose of bringing fresh water into the inhabitants of New York City.
3: Yes, but they did not do a very good job. The water eventually still came from Collect Pond, which was this fetid, awful, disgusting mess that really was not a good, safe source of drinking water. Burr didn't actually really care because what he really wanted to do and that they had more leverage to do, their, their charter was quite wide enough that they could
1: also fund a bank. Because the other bank in town, the federalist dominated Bank of New York that had been founded by Alexander Hamilton, wasn't in the habit really of giving lots of loans to everyday people. Uh, people who were not landowners. Mm -hmm. So a new bank pushed by Aaron Burr that lent money to less wealthy people could help them construct uh, property, become voting citizens, and bolster his political party. Mm -hmm. So it had very little to do with water. There were big stakes
3: involved here, which is why this murder trial was actually quite inconvenient because it was indirectly dragging the Manhattan Company into the headlines and was besmirching Burr's own reputation. An acquittal of Levi Weeks would wash the proverbial blood off the bricks that were the foundation of the Manhattan Company.
1: Okay, so that's why Burr's involved. But what about Alexander Hamilton? Why is he also here? Well, Hamilton was also involved a
3: little bit with the Manhattan Company, the water the water company, but also Ezra Weeks was building his home, the Hamilton Grange in Upper Manhattan. So they're all friendly, they're all involved here. Thus, Burr agrees to defend Levi Weeks on behalf of his brother, agrees to defend him for free. Then he brings in Alexander Hamilton, and then joining them is a third private practice lawyer named Brockhurst Livingston, who you mentioned earlier.
1: From the famous Livingston family.
3: Now, the trial began on March 31st, 1800, and it was at City Hall Which, in 1800, was also Federal Hall.
1: Ah, right. And we talked about this in the George Washington episode earlier this year. Mm -hmm. And New York is the capital city. When the capital moved out of New York, the Federal Hall became City Hall.
3: Right. But it's the same place where George Washington had been inaugurated. And this was down on Wall Street at Wall Street and Broad Street. This murder trial attracted so many people. There were so many curiosity seekers and so many people interested in it that the streets on both days of the trial, because it was only two days, were clogged with people. From an original report, quote, In the streets, the throng was so dense that it seemed as if one might literally walk on the heads of the people. The crowds were already screaming by this time. Some of them were yelling, ''Hang him! Crucify him!'' The visitor's galley inside, which, by the way, was the spot of the old U.S. Congress. This was filled with people, crammed with people. This was the only thing that people were talking about in New York in March of 1800.
1: And many people who were present by this point had also read about the case in pamphlets that had been printed and circulated around town, that really pushed the idea that Levi was guilty. People had already made up their minds in many cases, and so, which of course made
3: this a lot more urgent for Burr that he needed to to help his client get off the hook. Now, the prosecutor in the case was a man with an interesting name and lineage, named Cadwalader Colden. He was. Did you G- say that again? Cadwalader Colden. So he was the. Prosecutor. Prosecutor. So the morning of the trial, Levi is sworn in, and then they, at that moment, chose the jurors, which is kind of an interesting way they used to do it back then. The clerk then addressed the jury, and I wanted to read a couple excerpts from the opening statement, because it's very dramatic. Quote, Levi Weeks, late of the seventh ward of the city of New York in the county of New York, laborer, not having the fear of God before his eyes, but being moved and seduced by the instigation of the devil. With force and arms at the ward aforesaid, in and upon one Julielma Sands, feloniously, willfully, and of his malice aforethought, did make an assault, cast, throw, and push the said Sands into a certain well there situated, wherein there was a great quantity of water. Colden then stood up and made another statement. The deceased was a young girl who, till her fatal acquaintance with the prisoner, was virtuous and modest, and it will be material for you to remark, always of a cheerful disposition and lively manners, though of a delicate constitution. We expect to prove to you that the prisoner won her affections and that her virtue fell a sacrifice to his assiduity. Then, after a long period of criminal intercourse between them. He deluded her from the house of her protector under a pretense of marrying her and carried her away to a well in the suburbs of this city and there
1: murdered her. So this was Colden's opening statement. Did he then produce some witnesses? Right. So that entire day were witnesses
3: that he presented to vividly paint a picture of an amoral, lustful relationship that had gone wrong. The first person to take the stand was Catherine Ring. Ms. Ring herself. Interestingly, by the way, because they were Quakers, they didn't have to swear on a Bible. Uh-huh. Because they didn't believe in that. Now, a lot of the recounting that you did earlier in the show came from a lot of this testimony, so I won't repeat it. But it's interesting the kinds of things that were focused on. For instance, her testimony and the questioning came down to whose footsteps she heard on the steps inside the boarding house and whether elma had followed levi out that particular evening so that even the sound of the hollow staircase and the, the big thick door mm-hmm. comes into a lot of consideration during this another quote which you had earlier said that levi believed that she might be suicidal and that she might drink some kind of a poison that's right he also said to her and she repeated this on the stand "...Mrs. Ring, it is my firm belief that Elma is now in eternity. Therefore, make yourself easy, for our mourning will never bring her back." Levi thought she was in eternity? Well, he already was assuming that she was dead. That she had killed herself. Yes. Now, the reason that she was bringing these things up, of course, her testimony seemed poised to paint Levi as almost comically guilty... And was clearly trying to, and not doing a very good job of it, trying to cover up the crime. And so afterwards, husband
1: Elias went up on the stand, as did Hope Sands. So the rings, including Hope Sands, are all painting a picture of Levi as guilty.
3: That he's got something to hide, definitely. That is the case that the prosecution is making and was only further enhanced late in the day with the testimony of Richard Croucher, the other border. Oh, the British man. Yeah. I mean, he kind of even goes further in his assertions and his speculations. It also seems like neither Levi nor Elma liked Richard Croucher very much because he's very bitter. At one point, he says, quote, she thought he was an Adonis. Mm. That first night's testimony lasted until past two in the morning. So from 10 a.m. to two Two in the the morning.
1: And that's because... I guess they expected that the whole thing could be wrapped up in one day, as as trials really usually just took one day. They didn't have these mega cases back then. So you can imagine the
3: attendees here all stumbling from City Hall there onto Wall Street and these dark, candlelit streets.
1: So everybody leaves the courthouse at 2 o'clock in the morning? Not
3: not everybody. The jury still stays at City Hall throughout this whole period. They spent the night at... At City Hall. They weren't allowed to leave. They weren't allowed to see the outside world until this case was over. Well, the following day, Colden completes his prosecution with bringing up various doctors to report on the the body.
1: These are doctors who had examined the body, some of them on the street at Greenwich, but others um, in the laboratory and had actually performed an autopsy. Partially to see if she was, in fact, with child, because there had been rumors circulating that she was bearing Levi Weeks child. These were not confirmed. She was proven to have been not pregnant at the time. Well,
3: I would say that most of the testimony from these doctors wasn't what we would call exact Mm. or even accurate. And in fact, Byrne Hamilton knew this and pretty much destroyed most of the testimony of these doctors in the cross examination. For instance, one doctor reported on the marks that were on a victim's neck, that perhaps she was strangled to death. The defense dismantles this with other testimony, then is very helpful in pointing out that the doctor who had testified on these marks, a man named Richard Skinner, well, I mean, in reality, he was just a dentist surgeon and wasn't a real doctor. So
1: how would he know? So the prosecution's medical case then, that Levi had strangled her and then thrown her down the well, was falling apart. In fact, everything seemed circumstantial.
3: By Colden's own admission, quote, circumstantial evidence is all that can be expected, and indeed all that is necessary to substantiate such a charge.
1: So... He didn't do a fantastic job. So wait, all these other people are testifying. What about the testimony of Levi Weeks himself? He never takes the stand
3: throughout the whole trial because uh, back then they didn't deem the testimony of an accused murderer as being sound testimony. Interesting. So all Hamilton and Burr had to do was introduce reasonable doubt into this case or as Burr said, quote, we shall show you that if suspicions may be attached anywhere, there are those
1: on whom they may be fastened with more appearance of truth, unquote. So, in other words, somebody else there in the courtroom might be responsible for Elma's death. Right. Or even, I suppose, that Elma herself was responsible for her death. Right, because
3: that was still a theory that was lingering, is that she had jumped to her own death. They also looked into the community itself, whose ire at Levi Weeks had been drummed up by all of these reports that had been floating around, right? These, these pamphlets
1: that people had been passing amongst each other. So
3: they thought, well, if Levi hadn't done it, then why was this individual who had made these these pamphlets? Why was he so intent on placing the blame on Levi Weeks? Well, during a testimony of a grocer who had received some of these pamphlets, he was asked who handed him the, these pamphlets, who made these pamphlets. And he proclaimed that the man was named Richard Croucher. And so Richard Croucher Richard Croucher. The
1: same, the British man who was living at the ring's boarding house.
3: Yes. He had manufactured the pamphlets. The most dramatic moment of the entire trial, for this was the end of the second day and the room was very dark, lit only by candlelight. Hamilton, interviewing the grocer, he picked up a candlestick and he walked towards Richard Croucher, who was there in the audience, held it up the Croucher's face and asked the grocer... Is this the man? And the grocer said, "Yes, that is the man." At that moment, all the doubt in the room seemed to have somehow left the shoulders of Levi and was now planted here on Mr. Richard Croucher, the man who had attempted to throw the blame on to Mr. Weeks.
1: And this little dramatic move would forever go down as Hamilton's candlestick. <laughs> Everyone was exhausted by this point.
3: Uh, Colden, who... stick of he, it. They were shtick of it. Colden was exhausted. He knew he was losing the trial, the prosecutor. He asked that they adjourn for the day and come back, because it was well past midnight, and come back the next day for a third day. Making the jurist sleep again at City Hall right. for a second night? Right. But the judge declared, quote... Two nights passed in this manner might make some of them sick and prevent a determination. So he said, no, it has to end tonight. Hamilton rose to give a closing statement, but with flourish, said, your honor, if it please you, we relinquish our closing argument. The merits of our case are such that they require no summation.
1: And the jury, exhausted, retreated to their chambers, but came back to the courtroom Within a few minutes, now there are varying accounts, 5, 10, 15 minutes, whatever it was, it was short. And the foreman stood and pronounced Levi Weeks not guilty. To great shouts and cries, Levi left City Hall, left the court, a free man. But the city was stunned. Remember that the crowds had already convicted Levi on their own, And even the Ring family, where where he lived, had turned against him. There's a legend, Greg, um, perhaps you saw it too, that Mrs. Ring stood up in the courtroom and she screamed at the men responsible at the front of the courtroom and said, if any of these dies a natural death, I shall think there is no justice in heaven. That's probably not historically accurate. But many of them would suffer unusual fates. And it certainly put Levi in an
3: uncomfortable position. His reputation had been dragged through the mud.
1: Oh, the entire city was against him. And in fact, once these pamphlets would come out, you know, offering an entire transcript of the trial, especially William Coleman's, which came out a couple of weeks later on April 14th, people could read all the testimony. And Levi had a very difficult time living in the city. He first lived with his brother for a while, uh, but then moved to live with his parents in Deerfield, Massachusetts. Uh, but from there, he wandered off first to Cincinnati, uh, then to Kentucky, and finally he settled down in Mississippi, living in uh, Natchez, Mississippi. And there he would sort of rebuild his career as an architect. He married a woman named Anne Greenleaf. They had four children. He went on to design and build residences, and he... He died there in 1819 at 43 years old. His house there is
3: is even a historic landmark.
1: Well, and his brother would continue his long and distinguished career in New York, uh, designing prominent buildings. He constructed and ran hotels. He was a hotelier. And it's also believed that he was involved in the construction of Gracie Mansion. So Ezra Weeks went on to do great things. Whatever happened to the Ring family? Well, their boarding house um, had become so infamous that they had to give it up. Elias Ring went on to work as a mechanic, but it seems that he struggled with drink. He was kicked out of the Quaker church where they belonged. They hit hard times, and they moved on, finally settling down in Mobile, Alabama, uh, where he would soon thereafter die of yellow fever.
3: Wow, so everything really does go south for everyone here.
1: Well, Catherine and Hope would actually move back up north, Greg. After Elias' passing, they moved back up to upstate New York, where they lived for the rest of their lives. And whatever happened to Richard Croucher? Well, about three weeks after the trial, Richard had remarried and was in the process of moving from the boarding house where he had been living to his new home where he'd lived with his wife and with her 13-year-old stepdaughter. Well, about three weeks after the trial, he had asked his stepdaughter to help him move his possessions from the boarding house to their new residence. He took his stepdaughter back to the boarding house, up to the third floor, and there he raped her. For this, he was put on trial, convicted, and rightfully called a monster in the press. But after serving three years of his life term, he was granted a pardon by Governor Clinton on the condition that he immediately leave the country and go back to England. But instead, he ran off to Virginia, where he swindled some more people. He was convicted again, and he was finally shipped back to England.
3: So a genuinely bad guy here, but never convicted of the Elma Sands murder.
1: No, though there are some. Um, who believed that he really was responsible for Alma's murder without giving too much away. There is a book that we both read by Paul Collins called Duel with the Devil, which makes a convincing case that Croucher might have had more to do with this crime than was publicly suggested by the attorneys. Well,
3: speaking of attorneys, Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr were a little bit more familiar with what happened to those two.
1: There are thousands of books, in fact, (laughs) even a musical, you can see, um, that covered their subsequent careers, their personal struggles, ordeals, their various destinies. In 1800, Burr would help Thomas Jefferson win the presidential election and would serve, of course, as his vice president. All the while, the enmity between Burr and Hamilton, of course, would deepen, and fast forwarding a couple years, Burr charged Hamilton with slandering his name in June of 1804, which led to their duel on the morning of July 11th, 1804, across the river in New Jersey. Now, we know what happened here. We have an entire podcast on what happened. Hamilton shot into the trees, and Burr shot Hamilton. Hamilton died the next day, July 12th, 1804, leaving his family in a dire financial situation. And Burr found himself quickly a pariah in his town. He left New York, leaving behind his mansion, his possessions, and all of his debts. He would live in various places, including Paris, uh, where he found himself penniless moved back to New York City where he rebuilt a law career and died at the age of 80 in 1836. And Brockholst Livingston here, the third defense attorney, would be
3: nominated for the Supreme Court by Thomas Jefferson. Right. And would serve there
1: until he died in 1823. Remember court reporter William Coleman, mm-hmm. who took down the notes, who transcribed all of the testimony that we both read, that anybody can read today. Soon after the trial, he was chosen by Alexander Hamilton to lead his new Federalist newspaper, The New York Post. Which he did. He served as its editor and did a, you know, and had a very distinguished career.
3: As for Cadwalader, Cad. old Cad Colden, yeah. eighteen years after the trial, Mister Colden would become the mayor of New York City.
1: Well, and as for those wells, right? As for the Manhattan Company, uh, they would definitely embrace, as you suggested, their non-water related aspirations, <laughs> mm-hmm. and many years later, eventually be known as the Chase Manhattan Bank.
3: The Chase Manhattan Bank is the old bank of the Manhattan Company. That is correct. Founded by Aaron Burr. So when you go into a Chase Bank, a bank vestibule to use an ATM machine, you are in essence using the same company that built the well where Elma
1: Sands died. That's right. That well, which was located, as you mentioned, in Lisbonard's Meadows, would be staked out divided up into lots and sold off in the process creeks and springs would be lost they'd be buried over leaving really only the name spring street behind as a reminder of its bucolic past
3: the only evidence that a spring was ever here but what happened to the well itself
1: well i think that in all of that reworking and leveling of the land the well would be covered up it would be buried really The story would be remembered because this was such a notorious murder story. It'd be remembered around anniversaries, the well would be remembered, but then it would be sort of lost again. In the 1950s, in 1957, a Times journalist named Meyer Berger revisited the scene of the crime. He was trying to hunt down the well, walking along Spring Street. He wrote a fantastic piece, which I'm sure you'll link to on the blog colorful piece about trying to find the place of the crime. He didn't really know where it was. There was a there was a play produced in the nineteen seventies called Alma at La Mama, which imagined William Coleman trying to, you know, print a tell-all about the incident. But it would be in the nineteen eighties when the owner of the Manhattan Bistro at 129 Spring Street Started digging around in his basement, digging out a new wine cellar, and came across a brick wall and hauled out dirt and basically excavated the old Manhattan well. Wow, it was in the basement of this property the entire time. Covered up for nearly
3: two centuries. So now here in the 1980s, Spring Street is, of course, in Soho, the fashionable artist district which would become a retail district we have a whole show on this which we released a few months ago
1: and for decades while it served as a restaurant members of the wait staff complained about sometimes feeling the presence of somebody like like somebody else was around like there was a, a spirit um, who had perhaps never left the premises or or perhaps had been released into their restaurant The restaurant has since been replaced by a clothing shop called Cause. And notably, they have preserved the well in their basement. And it's now surrounded by upscale male clothing. And thousands
3: of shoppers go up and down Spring Street every day. This is still a very, very bustling area. Thousands go by this area, never knowing the story of Elma Sands and the mystery of the Manhattan well.
1: For more on this, including links to the actual testimony taken down by William Coleman, visit our blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where we'll have a post with more information about this most notorious murder. This is the beginning of our month of mystery, so our next
3: two shows will have spine-tingling themes to them. We encourage you to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at Barry Boys.
1: We'd also like to thank the library staff at the New York Historical Society who presented me yesterday with an original copy of William Coleman's transcript of that trial from 1800. Yeah, I was impressed. You sent
3: me a tweet. (laughs) You and this old document.
1: Yeah, um, it's even though anybody can read the digitized version, and I'm happy for that, there really is nothing quite like turning those pages for yourself. Browned pages of history. <coughs> um, and we'd also, of course, like to thank our patrons who have joined us on Patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot slash Bowery Boys. And as a thank you for your support, we put out bonus episodes for each of these shows. In today's bonus show, Greg and I will shortly be discussing who we think really did it. Who done it? And on that note, thank you very much for listening.
3: Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.
0: The legends are
2: true. Overwhelming power! Sauce of destiny. Yes!